Volume 1, Chapter 8 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, a legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper, Volume 1, Chapter 8. And from the lattice gallery came a chant of psalms, most saint-like and most angelical, verse after verse sung out most holy. Rogers. The succeeding day was the Sabbath. The morning of the weekly festival was always announced to the peasants of the Egerthal with the usual summons to devotion. The madden bell had been heard on the abbey walls even before the light penetrated to the bottom of the deep veil and all the pious had bent in common wherever the sounds happened to reach their ears in praise and thanksgiving but as the hours wore on a more elevated display of roman worship was prepared in the high mass a ceremony addressed equally to the feelings and the senses the sun was fairly above the hills and the season bland to seduction the domestic cattle relieved from their weekly toil basked against the hillside ruminating in contentment and filled with the quiet pleasures of their instinct Children gambled before the cottage doors. The husbandmen loitered in the habiliments that had borne the fashions of the hard through many generations, regarding the silent growth of his crops, and the housewife hurried from place to place in the excitement of simple domestic enjoyment. The month was the most grateful of the twelve, and well filled with hopes. The grass had reached its height and was throwing out its exuberance. The corn was filling fast, and the vine began to give forth its clusters. In the midst of this scene of rural tranquillity, the deep-toned bells of the abbey called the flock to its usual fold. Long practice had made the Brotherhood of Limburg expert in all the duties that were necessary to the earthly administration of their functions. Even the peals of the bells were regulated and skillful. Note mournfully succeeded note, and there was not a silent dell for miles into which the solemn call did not penetrate. Bells were heard, too, from Durkheim and even from the wide plains beyond. But none rose fuller upon the air or came so sweet and melancholy to the ear as those which hung in the abbey towers. Obedient to the summons, there was a gathering of all in the valley towards the gate of Limburg. A crowd appeared also in the direction of the gorge, for devotion, superstition, or curiosity never failed to attract a multitude on these occasions, to witness mass in that celebrated conventual chapel. Among the latter came equally the skeptical and the believing, the young and the old, the fair and her who deemed it prudent to shade a matronly countenance with the veil, the idol, the half-converted follower of Luther, and the lover of music. It was customary for one of the brothers to preach when Mass was ended, and Limburg had many monks that were skilled in the subtleties of the times, and some even who had names for eloquence. With the management and coquetry that enter into most human devices that are intended to act on our feelings, especially in matters that it is not thought safe to confide too much to naked reason, the peals of the bells were continued long, with a view to effect. As group after group arrived, the court of the abbey slowly filled, until there appeared a congregation sufficiently numerous to gratify the self-love of even a clerical star of our own times. There was much grave salutation among the different dignitaries that were here assembled, for of all those who doff the cap in courtesy, perhaps the German is the most punctilious and respectful. As the neighboring city was fully represented in this assembly of the religious and curious, there was also a profitable display of the duties that are due to station. A herald might have obtained many useful hints, 
had he been there to note the different degrees of simple homage that were paid, from the burgomaster to the bailiff. Among the variety of idle and ill-digested remarks that are lavished on the American people and their institutions, it is a received pleasantry to joke on their attachment to official dignities. But he who has not only seen, but observed both his own countrymen and strangers, will have had numberless occasions to remark that this, like most similar strictures, is liable to the imputation of vapidity and of being proof of a narrow observation. The functionary that is literally a servant of the people, whatever may be his dispositions, can never triumph over his masters. And, though it be an honest and commendable ambition to wish to be so distinguished, we need only examine the institutions to see that in this, as in most other similar circumstances, there is no strict analogy between ourselves and European nations. The remark has probably been made because a respect for official authority has been found among us when there was the expectation and possibly the wish to find anarchy. At the high mass of Limburg there was more ceremony observed in ushering the meanest village dignitary to his place in the church than would be observed in conducting the head of this great republic to the high station he occupies. And care was had by an agent of the convent to see that no one should approach the altar of the Lord of the universe without his receiving the deference he might claim in virtue of his temporal rank. Here, where all appear in the temple as they must appear in their graves, equals in dependence on divine support as they are equals in frailty, it will not be easy to understand the hardihood of sophistry which thus teaches humility and penitence with the tongue, and invites to pride and presumption in the practice, and which, when driven to a reason for his conduct, defends itself against the accusation of inconsistency by recriminating the charge of envy. There had been a suitable display of ceremony when several functionaries of Durkheim appeared, but the strongest manifestation of respect was reserved for a burgher, who did not enter the gates until the people were assembled in the body of the church. This personage, a man whose hair was just beginning to gray and whose solid, vigorous frame denoted full health and an easy life, came in the saddle. For at the period of which we write, there was a bridal path to the portal of Limburg. He was accompanied by a female, seemingly his spouse, who rode an ambling nag, bearing on the crupper a crone that clung to her well-formed waist, with easy domestic familiarity, but like one unused to her seat. A fair-haired, rosy girl sat the pillion of the father, and a serving-man, in a species of official livery, closed the cavalcade. Sundry of the more substantial citizens of Durkheim hastened to the reception of this little party, for it was Heinrich Frey, with Meta, her mother, and Ilse, that came unexpectedly to the mass of Limburg. The affluent and flourishing citizen was ushered to the part of the church or chapel where special chairs were reserved for such casual visits of the neighboring functionaries or for any noble that devotion or accident might lead to worship at the abbey's altars. Heinrich Frey was a stout, hale, obstinate, sturdy burgher in whom prosperity had little cooled benevolence, but who, had he escaped the allurements of office and the recollection of his own success, might have passed through life as one that was wanting in neither modesty nor humanity. He was, in short, on a diminished scale, one of those examples of desertion from the ranks of mankind to the cordelite of the lucky, that we constantly witness among the worldly and fortunate. While a youth, he had been sufficiently considerate for the burdens and the difficulties of the unhappy. But a marriage with a small heiress and subsequent successes had gradually brought him to a view of things that was more in unison with his own particular interests than it was in either philosophical or Christian life. 
He was a firm believer in the dictum which says none but the wealthy have sufficient interest in society to be entrusted with its control, though his own instinct might have detected the sophistry, since he was daily vacillating between opposing principles, just as they happened to affect his own particular concerns. Heinrich Frey gave freely to the mendicant and to the industrious, but when it came to be a question of any serious melioration of the lot of either, he shook his head in a manner to imply a mysterious political economy and uttered shrewd remarks on the basis of society and of things as they were established. In short, he lived in an age when Germany, and indeed all Christendom, was much agitated by a question that was likely to unsettle not only the religion of the day, but divers other vested interests, and he might have been termed the chief of the conservative party in his own particular circle. These qualities, united to his known wealth, a reputation for high probity, which was founded on the belief that he was fully able to repair any pecuniary wrong he might happen to commit, a sturdy maintenance of his own opinions, that passed with the multitude for the consistency of rectitude, and a perfect fearlessness in deciding against all those who had not the means of disputing his decrees, had procured for him the honor of being the first burgomaster of Durkheim. Were the countenance a certain index of the qualities of the mind, a physiognomist might have been at a loss to discover the motives which had induced Ulrike Halsinger, not only the fairest, but the wealthiest maiden of the town, to unite herself in marriage with the man we have just delineated. A mild, melancholy blue eye that retained its luster in despite of forty years, a better outline of features than is common to the region in which she dwelt, and a symmetry of arm and bust that, on the other hand, is rather peculiar to the natives of Germany, still furnish sufficient evidence of the beauty for which she must have been distinguished in early life. In addition to these obvious and more vulgar attractions, the matronly partner of Heinrich had an expression of feminine delicacy and intelligence, of elevated views, and even of mysterious aspirations which rendered her a woman that a nice observer of nature might have loved to study, and have studied to love. In personal appearance, Meta was a copy of her mother, engrafted on the more ruddy health and less abstracted habits of the father. Her character will be sufficiently developed as we proceed in the tale. We commit ills to the reader's imagination, which will readily conceive the sort of attendant that has been introduced. The Herr Heinrich did not take possession of his customary post before the high altar without causing the stir and excitement among the simple peasants of the Jägerthal, and the truant Durkheimers who were present, that became his condition in life. But even city importance cannot predominate forever in the house of God, and the bustle gradually subsiding, expectation began to take precedency of civic rank. The Abbey of Limburg stood high among the religious communities of the Rhine, for its internal decorations, its wealth, and its hospitality. The chapel was justly deemed a rare specimen of monastic taste, nor was it wanting in most of those ornaments and decorations that render the superior buildings devoted to the service of the Church of Rome so imposing to the senses and so pleasing to the admirers of solemn effect. The building was vast, and as prevailed throughout that region, and in the century of which we write, somber. It had numerous altars rich in marbles and pictures, each celebrated in the Palatinate for the kind mediation of the particular saint to whom it was dedicated. The walls and the nave were painted al fresco, not indeed with the pencil of Raphael or Buonarroti, but creditably and in a manner to heighten the beauty of the place. The choir was carved in high relief, after a fashion much esteemed, and that was admirably executed in the middle states of Europe, no less than in Italy and the whole flocks of cherubs were seen 
poising on the wing around the organ, the altar, and the tombs. The latter were numerous, and indicated by their magnificence that the bodies of those who had enjoyed the world's advantages slept within the hallowed precincts. At length the door communicating with the cloisters opened, and the monks appeared walking in procession. At their head came the abbot, wearing his mitre and adorned with the gorgeous robes of his ecclesiastical office. Two priests, decorated for the duties of the altar, followed, and then succeeded the professed and the assistants in pairs. The whole procession swept through the aisles in stately silence, and, after making the tour of most of the church, paying homage and offering prayers at several of the most honored altars, it passed into the choir. Father Bonifacius was seated on his Episcopal throne, and the rest of the brotherhood occupied the glossy stalls reserved for such occasions. During the march of the monks, the organ breathed a low accompaniment, and, as they became stationary, its last strain died in the vaulted roof. At this moment, the clattering of horses' hoofs was audible, without causing the startled and uneasy priests to suspend the mass. The rattling of steel came next, and then the heavy tread of the armed heels was heard on the pavement of the church itself. Emic of Hartenburg came up the principal aisle, with the steady front of one confident of his power, and claiming deference. He was accompanied by his guests, the Knight of Rhodes and Monsieur Latouche, while young Burkhold Hintermeyer kept at his elbow, like one accustomed to be in close attendance. A small train of unarmed dependents brought up the rear. There was a seat of honor in the choir itself, and near the master altar to which it was usual to admit princes and nobles of high consideration. Passing through the crowd that had collected at the railing of the choir, the count inclined towards one of the lateral aisles, and was soon face to face with the abbot. The latter arose and slightly recognized the presence of his guest, while the whole brotherhood imitated his example, though with greater respect, for, as we have said, it was usual to pay this homage to worldly rank, even in the temple. Emic seated himself with a scowl on his visage, while his two noble associates found seats of honor near. Burkhold stood at hand. An inexperienced eye could have detected no outward signs of his recent defeat in the exterior of Wilhelm of Venlu. His muscles had already regained their tone, and his entire countenance, its usual expression of severe authority, a quality for which it was more remarkable than for any lines of mortification or of thought. He glanced at the victor, and then, by a secret sign, communicated with a lay brother. At this moment the mass commenced. Of all the nations of Christendom, this, compared with its numbers, is the least connected with the Church of Rome. The peculiar religious origin of the people, their habits of examination and mental independence, and their prejudices, for the Protestants is no more free from this falling than the Catholic, are likely to keep them long separated from any policy, whether of church or state, that exacts faith without investigation or obedience without the right to remonstrate. An opinion is sedulously disseminated in the other hemisphere, that busy agents are rapidly working changes in this respect, and a powerful party is anxiously anticipating great ecclesiastical and political results from the return of the American nation to the opinions of their ancestors of the Middle Ages. Were the facts so, it would give us little concern, for we do not believe salvation to be the peculiar province of sects. But had we any apprehensions of the consequences of such a conversion, they would not be excited by the accidental accumulations of emigrants in towns or on the public works in which the country is so actively engaged. We believe that where one native Protestant becomes a Catholic in America, ten emigrant Catholics drop quietly into the ranks of the prevailing sects, and without at all agitating the point of which is the gainer or the loser by the change, we shall proceed to describe the manner of the Mass as a ceremony, 
that 99 in 100 of our readers have never had, nor probably ever will have, an opportunity of witnessing. There is no appeal to the feelings of man which has given rise to opinions so decidedly at variance as those which are entertained of the Roman ritual. To one description of Christians, these ceremonies appear to be vain mummeries invented to delude and practice for unjustifiable needs, while to another they contain all that is sublime and imposing in human worship. As is usual in most cases of extreme opinions, the truth would seem to lie between the two. The most zealous Catholic errs when he would maintain the infallibility of all who minister at the altar, or when he overlooks the slovenly and irreverent manner in which most of the holy offices are so frequently performed, and surely the Protestant who quits the temple in which justice has been done to the formula of this church, without perceiving that there is deep and sublime devotion in its rites, has steeled his feelings against the admission of every sentiment in favor of a sect that he is willing to prescribe. We belong to neither class, and shall therefore endeavor to represent things as they have been seen, not disguising or affecting a single emotion, because our fathers happened to take refuge in this western world to set up altars of a different shade of faith. The interior of the Abbey Church of Limburg, as has just been stated, was renowned in Germany for its magnificence. Its vaulted roof was supported by many massive pillars, and ornamented with scriptural stories by the best pencils of that region. The grand altar was of marble, richly embellished with agate, containing as usual a labored representation of the Blessed Mary and her deified child. A railing of exquisite workmanship and richly gilded, excluded profane feet from this sanctified spot which, in addition to its fixtures, was now glittering with vessels of gold and precious stones being decorated for the approaching mass. The officiating priest wore vestments stiffened with golden embroidery, while the inferior attendants were as usual clad in white and bound with scarfs of purple. Upon this scene of gorgeous and elaborate splendor, in which the noble architecture united with the minute preparations of the service, to lead the spirit to lofty contemplations, the chant of the monks and the tones of the organ broke in a deep and startling appeal to the soul. Lives dedicated to the practices of their community had drilled the brotherhood into perfection, and scarce a note issued among the vaults that was not attuned to the desired effect. Trombones, serpents, and vials lent their aid to increase the solemn melody of powerful masculine voices, which were so blended with the wind instruments as to comprise but one deep, grand, and grave sound of praise. Count Emic turned on his seat, clenching the handle of his sword as if the clamor of the trumpet were in his ears. Then his unquiet glance met that of the abbot, and his chin fell upon a hand. As the service proceeded, the zeal of the brotherhood seemed to increase, and, as it was afterwards remarked, on no occasion had the mass of Limburg, at all times known for its power in music, been so remarkable for its strong and stirring influence. Voice rolled above voice, in a manner that must be heard to be understood, and there were moments when the tones of the instruments, full and united as they were, appeared drowned in the blending of a hundred human aspirations. From the deepest of one of these solemn peals there arose a strain, at whose first tone all other music was hushed. It was a single human voice, of that admixture of the male and female tones which seems nearest allied to the supernatural, being in truth a contralto of great compass, roundness, and sweetness. Count Emic started, for, when these heavenly strains broke upon his ear, they seemed to float in the vault above the choir, 
nor could he, as the singer was concealed, assure himself of the delusion while the solo lasted. He dropped his sword and gazed about him, for the first time that morning with an expression of human charity. The lips of young Burkhold parted in admiration, and as he just then met the blue eye of Meta, there was an exchange of gentle feeling in that quiet and secret glance. In the meantime, the chant proceeded. The single, unearthly voice that had so stirred the spirits of the listeners ceased, and the full chorus of the choir concluded the hymn. The Count of Linogen drew a breath so heavy that it was audible to Bonifacius. The latter suffered his countenance to unbend, and, as in the case of the youthful pair, the spirit of Concord appeared to soothe the tempers of these fierce rivals. But here commenced the ritual of the Mass. The rapid utterance of the officiating priest, gesticulations which lost their significance by being blended and indistinct, and prayers in a tongue that defeated their object by involving instead of rendering the medium of thought noble and clear, united to weaken the effect produced by the music. Worship lost its character of inspiration by assuming that of business neither attracting the imagination, influencing the feelings, nor yet sufficiently convincing the reason. Abandoning all these persuasive means, too much was left to the convictions of a naked and settled belief. Emic of Hartenburg gradually resumed his repulsive mien, and the effect of all that he had so lately felt was lost in cold indifference to words that he did not comprehend. Even young Burkhold sought the eye of Meadow less anxiously, and both the Knights of Rode and Monsieur Latouche gazed listlessly towards the throng group before the railing of the choir. In this manner did the service commence and terminate. There was another hymn, and a second exhibition of the power of music, though with an effect less marked than that which had been produced when the listeners were taken by surprise. Against the column, near the center of the church, was erected a pulpit. A monk rose from his stall at the close of the worship, and, passing through the crowd, ascended its stairs, like one about to preach. It was Father Johann, a brother known for the devotedness of his faith and the severity of his opinions. The low receding forehead, the quiet but glassy eye, and the fixedness of the inferior members of the face might readily have persuaded a physiognomist that he beheld a heavy enthusiast. The language and opinions of the preacher did not deny the expectations excited by his exterior. He painted in strong and ominous language the dangers of the sinner, narrowed the fold of the saved within metaphysical and questionable limits, and made frequent appeals to the fears and to the lost noble passions of his audience. While the greater number in the church kept aloof, listening indifferently or gazing at the monuments and other rich decorations of the place, a knot of kindred spirits clustered around the pillar that supported the preacher's desk, deeply sympathizing in all his pictures of pain and desolation. The sharp, angry, and denunciatory address of Father Johann was soon ended, and as he re-entered the choir, the abbot rose and retired to the cloisters, followed by most of the brotherhood. But neither the Count of Hartenburg nor any of his train seemed disposed to quit the church so soon. An air of expectation appeared, also to detain most of those in the body of the building. A monk, towards whom many longing eyes had been cast, yielded to the general and touching appeal, and quitting his stall, one of high honor, he took the place just vacated by Father Johann. The movement was no sooner made than the name of Father Arnoff, the prior, or the immediate spiritual governor of the community, was buzzed among the people. Emic arose, and accompanied by his friends, took a station near the pulpit, 
while the dense mass of uplifted and interested faces that filled the middle aisle proclaimed the interest of the congregation. There was that in the countenance and air of Father Arnoff to justify this plain demonstration of sympathy. His eye was mild and benevolent, his forehead full, placid, and even, and the whole character of his face was that of winning philanthropy. To the influence of this general and benevolent expression must be added evident signs of discipline, much thought, and meek hope. The spiritual part of such a man was not likely to belie the exterior. His doctrine, like that of the divine being he served, was charitable and full of love. Though he spoke of the terrors of judgment, it was with grief rather than with menace, and it was when dwelling on the persuasive and attractive character of faith that he was most earnest and eloquent. Again Emic found his secret intention shaken, and his frown relaxed to gleamings of sympathy and interest. The eye of the preacher met that of the stern baron, and, without making an alarming change of manner, he continued, as it were, by a natural course of thought. Such is the church in its purity, my hearers. Let the errors, the passions, or the designs of man pervert it in what manner they may. The faith I preach is of God, and it partakes of the godlike qualities of his divine essence. He who would impute the sins of its mistaken performance to aught but his erring creatures casts odium on that which is instituted for his own good, and he who would do violence to its altars lifts a hand against a work of omnipotence. With these words in his ears, Emic of Hartenburg turned away and passed musingly up the church. End of Volume 1, Chapter 8 Read by Joel Kendrick